How's that look? No real difference.
Hello, hello, good afternoon, and welcome to the Maleko and Flash podcast. I'm Maleko. I'm Flash. And today we are broadcasting to you live on location like we do every Wednesday, only today... Mm, it's a little different. It's a little different. <laughs> we are broadcasting from the seat of government in the state of Hawaii here, from the Hawaii State Capitol, uh, and uh, we are here with uh, our lieutenant governor to talk again about, uh, of course, all the things mattering uh, matter to the state, the coronavirus, we'll talk about how... Uh, how the vaccine rollout's going, uh, and everything else in between. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Maleco and Flash podcast today, the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Hawaii, Dr. Josh Green. Thank you, brother. I, I, we might sometimes refer to this as the backseat of government, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I'm honored to be with you guys, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time. Well, it's, it's really, I, I can't believe they let us in the building is, is really the biggest impression. There's, there's a lot of security here, COVID security here. Uh, and here come Flash and I rolling up. You know, Flash has got a sweatshirt on. You know, I, I'm me. And somehow they let us right in. So you got some pull. Well, actually, this is a reflection that we learned nothing from the Capitol raid and riots <laughs> just a couple weeks ago in Washington, D.C. But I am glad to see you two characters. I, I, we do got to say, we, we both sort of walked in and felt like, you know, we like we, we like uh, to give you a hard time. But now it's like, man, you know, you you have the home field advantage. And we I sort of I feel like I have to be on my best behavior, which is I'm not used to that feeling. Yeah, I'm a, I'm feeling a little shy today. Well, there's no bartender today. Obviously, uh, yes. uh, but we did provide beverages, and I understand that, that you like to drink Diet Coke. I, I like Diet Coke. I even like Diet Pepsi. I don't want to alienate anybody, but I appreciate <laughs> Look at that. this drink. And wow. Uh, he is a yeah. What a politician. <laughs> what a politically correct answer. I like Coke and also Pepsi. <laughs> Dude, I'll even drink a tab if it'll if it get anyone else to, to fall in love with our ideas to stop COVID. And I hate tab, but I'll drink it. <laughs> Well, there it is, folks. It's you like me it right and there. gin. Yes. <laughs> me and gin, too, by the yeah. way. Not yeah, a, yeah, not yeah. a fan, not a fan. Uh, well, you know, today is, is special because uh, the last time we spoke with you, uh, it was via Zoom, and it was kind of in the heart of, of the COVID freakout. Like, we were, you know, spring, beginning of summer, and we were quite unsure about what this coronavirus was going to bring us. And now we're about a year from its arrival in Hawaii. Um, what have we learned, if anything? We've learned a lot, actually. We've uh, let me start with with stupid political cliches and then move to what we've actually learned. Right? We've learned <laughs> how resilient we are, uh, and I say that with some sense of a straight face and 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 honesty. I mean, look, we really did prove that we could survive something that would shut down our economy, that would uh, really, you know, really um, wreak havoc with our lives. So. We've done something special, and people have pulled together. Those are the cliches, but are true. Uh, but we've also learned a lot of things about what we need to do going forward. We have to not just diversify our economy, but we have to have certain things to fortify it so that the next time that we have to shut the borders, and we went to, like, uh, down 99.6%. I mean, we dropped 99.6% as far as our travelers go. And that devastating effect you know, shot our unemployment. We got 125,000 people that suddenly lost their jobs temporarily, perhaps some people longer. We can't be the same state we were. Now, having gone through all those things, we've learned tactically how we can be healthier. We've learned tactically that we can survive and what it would cost if we have to shut things down. From my part, I've learned that the next time we ever have a crisis like this, that we should be able to essentially hit a political panic button and close things down for 45 days rather mm -hmm. than for six, eight, ten months. I mean, there are ways to do this. We've learned that, um, I'm going to just say a lot of things. We've learned that if you wear masks, you stop not just COVID, but the flu and the common cold. We've had no, I, you know, I'm your doc also, we've had no flu at all in the state of Hawaii. The cure for the common cold and flu has been masks or double masks and uh, social distancing and hand washing. You know, some of us who live like bachelors on the weekend in the call room and, and whatnot. We've been trying to um, trying to learn these years in, in living that way, not washing our hands enough, not doing all the right stuff. That's why we're spreading illness and disease. Now we learn these lessons the hard way, and, uh, and w as, we be, uh, as we become more civilized with these health, you know, these he health measures, we're just better off. So we've learned all those things. We've learned how difficult it is to have our children at home and what that impact is on, on them. My 10-year-old Sammy, 
who's just this awesome little guy, it really impacts what his, you know, what his social abilities are. You lose skills, and it's difficult. Well, it impacts you as a parent as well, obviously. It does, and Jamie's been extraordinary. We're lucky enough that I work two jobs. You know, I work here at the Capitol as your lieutenant governor. I do my work in the hospital on the weekends. We've learned that it's just a blessing that Jamie's been able, I mean, she's got a law degree and she's a star, has been able to spend all that extra time, but very few people are that lucky, right? And so all of these things are calculations about the future. We probably should have learned that uh, we need to open our schools sooner and put more resources into opening them, a better health plan. You know, for Maya, who goes to Iolani, and Sammy goes to a public charter school, my school was able to open many months ago, and they've had zero cases. Whereas Sam's school, because it was under-resourced, even though they're a great school, Voyager, they just were not able to do the same things. And so that meant that it affected Sam and Jamie. And so these are real lessons. I mean, I'm learning like a regular guy, but also I see it from the perspective of how we need to go forward. And next time, it should be a lot smoother. But we can talk about all the different impacts of, of COVID. I but really don't hope that there's a next time, by the way. Well, yes. it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, here we are a year from uh, or almost a year from its uh, first arrival in the islands. And now there is a new concern about the uh, the arrival of variants. Yes. Um, they've already shown to be present here in Hawaii. Uh, they've shown to be uh, very uh, contagious, in some cases more dangerous. Um and I, I don't know that I've seen any difference in our behavior to prevent it from arriving or spreading in Hawaii. Has anything changed in the way we're dealing with the virus as a result of the arrival of the variants? A, a small number of things that might not um, be very apparent, but what we've been able to do, and we're unlike many states, we've been able to actually systematically review the cases that have been positive. So... We have a lab that's second to none in Hawaii, so we can do the genetic analysis of any of the variants. We do 75 a week, 300 a month, and so we can look at where people have traveled from when they have positive cases. We can look at where the spread is slightly higher in a um, kind of a, a percent positivity rate. It's now low. It's 1.48% statewide, but we can assess different regions where it is higher and compare because you're right. The B117 variant out of the UK is somewhere between 40 and 70% more infectious and more likely to spread. But but that the UK variant is not more deadly, right? Just more infectious. That's correct. Okay. That's what we believe so far. Although these studies are kind of in real time. I mean this this stuff is happening just right in front of our eyes. Whereas the South African variant which we do not have any cases confirmed, uh, that that particular variant is more resistant to some of the vaccines and maybe maybe more lethal. So these are considerations because the South African variant doesn't respond to antibodies as well. Like, um, you know, if you're lucky enough to have good health care, you may actually get antibody therapy. And we want that for everyone, me personally. But that is a reality of some of these different variants. And so I was just listening to Dr. Fauci on my way up the elevator to come see you guys. And uh, Fauci was saying that... You have him like on a, like a text message? Or yeah, yeah, me like and Fauci, man. We're, just, we're just Apple chatting. watches. We just go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> My homie, Dr. Fauci, Dude, you know. I, I gave Fauci one of these masks. So I'm, I, Fauci, if you're watching, which it seems very unlikely you're watching me <laughs> and these two guys. It's but definitely not homie, likely. But <laughs> if you're watching, please put that mask on that we sent you from Ren Spooner because it was not cheap, and we want you to wear that mask. <laughs> All right. So, um, so Fauci was just saying that the fewer cases we have globally, if people get vaccinated, as long as they believe in it. I'm not going to force people to get vaccines. You know, they don't believe in it. They don't believe in it. But the more we do to suppress the, vac the um, viral load and the number of cases, you suppress the number of opportunities the virus has to mutate and therefore have variants and maybe defend itself against our vaccines or treatments and so on. So it's very prudent for us to knock it down as much as we can now because we've had 107,105,000 confirmed cases in the globe. We've had certainly three to five times as many cases that we didn't ever detect and, and check because people don't have a test. So when you're talking about those kind of numbers, you're going to get variants. And the good news for people, just a, kind of a science 101 on this, variants that are uh, more infectious tend to be less lethal. And the reason for that, it's a very uh, Darwinian reason. And that's if you get a, a mutation that is really nasty and kills a bunch of people, it doesn't have as much time to spread. It takes you down, which is no joy if you're one of the people that it takes down. But it won't spread widely. The less severe variants tend to be more infectious and spread be 
because they have a host and they want to spread. Um, and then, of course, in the end game, they may mutate and become a problem. So this is the science behind it. But Fauci says if we knock this thing down, we'll have much less variants. And our vaccines do work against it. And today there was the, uh, the extra guidance from the CDC that uh, double masking is effective, uh, possibly using a, a, a tightly sealed cloth mask in addition to a hospital mask. Um, you, know, you see people here in Hawaii pretty compliant with masks. Yes. It, it seems like we, and I, I haven't been a lot of places, actually I haven't been anywhere since this thing started, but it seems like in Hawaii we have less of the mask battle than some places do. Um, and is, is that, is that going to be effective for us even with these vi variants as we go forward? Yeah, so the variants themselves, uh, they don't spread more because, uh, because they're just magical. They, they spread because they have a stickier nature to our upper membranes, but they don't get to the membranes if you have a mask on and you don't spread droplets. And look, I'm, I'm the first to admit there are moments when I don't have a mask. I mean, today I'm six feet away from you. I've been vaccinated and I had COVID, so I kind of got that you know, the super triple trifecta to protect, you know, us from spreading. But I was out on a walk and some lady who was relatively unpleasant went <laughs> after me. And, you know, I was out holding Sam's hand and walking and, and Jamie was in my other hand and we were having exercise. And so when you're out in the open air, if you're watching, lady, you know, you don't have to wear a mask because you're open air and you're just exercising. However, I do also believe in setting examples. So even though you are, you know what, on my fa in my face – I will say I appreciate that, uh, you know, you can be a nasty person and still make a good point. So okay. everyone should wear a mask if you're around others. If you're out exercising by yourself or just with your, your loved ones, you're not at risk. Okay, but so specifically to that, I, I hike Cocoa Head every weekend. and There's a uh, lot of people on Cocoa Head. Yeah, so Cocoa Head, it's obviously it's narrow. I don't know if you've ever done the Cocoa Head hike. It's narrow. It's Don't do it. Even now, there's, there's really no it's, point to it's do it. very it's crowded. It, it's basically impossible not to do the hike and come within six feet of people. I wear my mask when I do Cocoa Head every weekend, and I would say I'm one of maybe one out of ten people that are wearing their mask on Cocoa Head. Now, on the one hand, I go, I get it, because, I mean, you're dying by the time you get to the top. You're going to have a hard time breathing. But at the same time, I am able to do the hike with the mask on, and it, it, it just – there does seem to be a disconnect between when people are outside, when they're at the beach, when, th when they're, you know, doing certain activities, even that like people that are really good about wearing a mask don't wear their mask at those times. Yes. So if you're saying, Hey, I'm going on a walk with my kids and there's no one else around, I don't need to wear a mask. But if, if I'm doing cocoa head this weekend with hundreds of other people and we're in close proximity, you should still wear your mask, correct? Correct. I'll, I'll give you my cocoa head story in a second. So the, <laughs> yeah, the, so absolutely. Does it end with the firefighters and a helicopter no, coming? No, it's different. It's better than that one. So, but similar. So, yeah, you have your mask in your pocket, and if you end up near someone, so if you're going up cocoa head because you're going to be in close proximity to people, especially if someone's like a slob and they are so slow that you can't, you know, you're stuck behind them. <laughs> Maleko. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If Maleko's with that you, you, you have I'm to be fully joking. masked. But I if otherwise. You know, so you have your mask on anytime you're going to be close to anyone else. But if you're out in the open and you're not near anybody, you still have a mask in your pocket because someone wants to come and hang out or talk or whatever. Or if they're approaching you, you put your mask on. It's, uh, it's common sense. Right. Last time I went up with Cocoa Head, I went with one of my relatives, and they got sick and puked on my shoe. And so <laughs> I have this kind of thing about Cocoa Head right now because <laughs> it was unhygienic and unpleasant coming back down after they right. threw up on me. But get outside and exercise. It's a good, it's a good lesson. It's like the last time Maleko and I were at the bar together. That's uh, that was a long time ago. I, <laughs> yes. I don't even remember what he's talking Wearing about. Wearing slippers. Yes. <laughs> so, um, do you know exactly how many variants th that you guys have tested for here that are that are in the state right now? I I know how many we've confirmed. Right. So we've confirmed a couple different kinds of variant. We've confirmed the V one one seven, which is a drag, uh, because. That's the one, right? That's, That's the, the one. The so UK variant. The UK, yeah. So we had two separate uh, positives at least, and we have another uh, friend of the fr of one of the people, one of their um, partners or significant others, that is also in suspicion, so that's going to be a positive almost assuredly. So I, the way I describe this is it's like a cockroach, right? So if you catch a couple of, of these viruses, this strain, and you do it with a sample size of 75 per week, then there's you a whole nest living it, under the sink. Yes, exactly. We got a bunch of them. It, yes, so that's for sure the case. However, one of the things I do track is I track the the um, prevalence rate 
day over day over day and the positivity rate day over day over day. So we can see whether we're seeing a spike or not. And we have not seen a spike. In fact, we've seen a, a categorical decrease overall. So I don't think that we are very prominent with B117. Now, we did get some cases of the Denmark strain also. Denmark strain probably is better described as the California strain because it's taken over 30 to 40% of California. And so these strains become the predominant strain. They spread, and, and that's what we want to avoid with the B117. So what our Department of Health does is as soon as we get any of these things that are suspicious, and they can quickly see what they're suspicious for, when they get that, then we supercharge our tr contact tracing, isolation. People go in automatically to 10-day quarantine, mm -hmm. but we're more careful than other times. But we won't catch everyone. So the important message here is, look, get vaccinated when your turn comes up, in my opinion. Definitely do it. Get both shots because you get 52% vaccination protection. Uh, you're immune 52% of the time after one shot, but 95% after you've gotten both the Pfizer shots or both the Moderna shots. And then on top of that, you still should wear a mask because we do know that you will carry some some virus, some amount of virus in your upper airways. It'll be mostly decreased. It'll be significantly diminished. But you could be either one of the 20 people that's unlucky and don't get immune, catch COVID, be asymptomatic, and or if you have some viral particles and you end up you know, kissing some stranger a bunch of times, you're going to catch something. It might not be COVID. I've been telling people to <laughs> me yes. flash all the time. Flash, like, stop, stop everybody, everybody looked at me when he said that, including <laughs> Dr. Josh Green. <laughs> what, um, what do you think, if anything, would be the difference between the Pfizer and the Moderna and now coming online? Johnson, obviously, the big difference is one shot versus two. But in a general sense, between the three, what, what if anything, are the differences other than one versus two shots? Uh, so the there's very little difference between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. Uh, the largest difference, frankly, is uh, the practical nature of having to take the Pfizer three weeks apart and the Moderna four weeks apart, which is another week that you have to delay that significant uh, protection. And so yesterday I was giving vaccine uh, myself at the uh, at the plaza, one of the uh, care homes here, and they were just, first of all, wonderful people. I give a vaccine to a guy who's 103. It's incredible. I mean, that guy, born in 1917 awesome. Um, so you're, you're vaccinating people, but you have an extra week to wait for the Moderna. But the side effects have been about the same, very minimal. Mostly people are getting uh, just, excuse me, uh, soreness in the arm from the first shot. And then people are sometimes getting muscle aches and, and joint aches from the second shot. But it's nothing that a little extra Tylenol will take care of. So I highly recommend uh, going for one of those two shots if you are higher risk. And then when the Johnson & Johnson shot comes, because the first two were used by the same, same technique, same mRNA kind of thing, and so on. The next one, the Johnson & Johnson, it's not going to be 94 to 95% effective. It's going to really be closer to 66 to 72% uh, effective at preventing infection, which is a lot lower. It's also only one shot, so compliance will be perfect. After you get your first shot, that's it. Uh, but it does pr protect people and prevent disease that's severe somewhere between 95 and 100%. And that's important. So what I would say is you guys are young. Okay, when, when you're considering the shots that you get, it may very well be a good enough shot because really what you're trying to avoid, for the most part, is not having a catastrophic outcome, being one of the unlucky young people that ends up on a ventilator and dying. Okay, So getting one shot for some groups that are a little bit more transient, for other people who just want to get it over with, and it's going to be very available, are good things. I'll probably be recommending this up to age 45 or 50 if people want, if they want to wait for the two-shot cycle, of course. We should never disadvantage anybody. Well, let me ask you this, though. The, the, the rollout so far, it seems as though we're holding on to a lot more vaccine than we're giving out. Um, it, do you think that, uh, that the rollout in Hawaii for the vaccine is going smoothly, or are, are we hitting some road bumps here along the way? Uh, well, I would say this. Uh, the first couple of weeks, bumpy, obviously. But we're not really holding much back. I, the, numbers, the numbers are really improved. So... We're giving about 80% of all the vaccines that we've received consistently. As of this morning, we were at 218,997 shots, just so you know. And we had, in-state, 268,800 doses. So that was 80%. Now, this week, we're going to get 41,700 shots, but we're going to deliver 55,000 doses. So we're going to be over 80% delivered. There is about 50,000 uh, shots in a Delta that we have not delivered because in the next 10 days— 
we have that many people scheduled for their second shot. For every person uh, that's been given a vaccine, there's about two people that have been completed. And we're now at 10.8% of the population vaccinated. And each week that we pass, we're going to do another 50,000 plus shots. And then when I get the Johnson & Johnson into our system, we'll add, a, add that about 20,000 shots a week, it looks like. So now we're talking 70,000 shots a week, almost 300,000 shots a month, and we get there fast. Do you have enough people coming in to get the shots? Or is it time to maybe move on to the next phase? It is almost time. So we're really aggressively doing the 1B category right now. And I'll remind people where it's been. Okay, so 1A was healthcare workers and our kupuna who lived in nursing facilities who are in institutional housing. Most vulnerable people, it will definitely affect them. They'll die if they catch it. So those guys taken care of. And the healthcare community has to take care of people so we don't want them spreading it. So that's the reason, 1A. That was 50,000 people. 1B. 1B is 75 plus. That's 109,000 individuals. Uh, so that's a pretty good chunk of our state, 109,000 kupuna over 75. And then the critical infrastructure folks, like people that are first responders, people that control the energy grid, that do the water supply, and so on. Okay? Media. Media people are very important. Yes. Very important. <laughs> we're further down the, the list, I think. I think we're right above doctors, I think, as <laughs> the last uh, graphic you're, I saw. You're above a doctor or two <laughs> I, that I've met. But I think you... <laughs> <laughs> but most doctors have been really putting out, so they, they're, uh, they're getting it, and, and they're giving the shots, too, as you know. So I tease them a lot, but they've been wonderful. Uh, so we get through the 1B category, and that's another 150,000-plus people. And then we move into the 1C category, which is, to your question, where we should go, and that's 65 to 74. We're going to first prioritize those who have some health conditions mm -hmm. because the other category in 1C is – all of the individuals in our state that have chronic disease. And that's about 400,000 people out of 1.4 million people. Regardless of age. Regardless of age, that's right. We'll still always emphasize older goes first because the mortality rate's just higher. So if we have, say, someone in the category of essential workers, like let's say uh, a grocery store worker who is out there with a lot of people and we have to keep the food supply going and they maybe weren't like where firefighters are or, or police, but they came into the category... If there was a 64-year-old or 69-year-old grocery store worker, they would go long before the 35-year-old and so on. And so we're emphasizing that too. And I know it can be frustrating for people, but as we get to the Johnson & Johnson where we can do a lot more people with the one shot, then we're looking good. Okay. And, yeah. Now you just went on record, I think even may, may have been earlier today, saying you want to see people 65 and up get vaccinated starting March 1st. It seems like most other states across the country are already vaccinating 65 and up. So wh why is Hawaii lagging behind other states for that? So, again, I wouldn't say most because it's 24. It's half the states started at 65. Uh, the challenge, though, for that was it was a little bit disingenuous. Now, none of those states had any more vaccine than the others based on population. So none of them were able to get down to 65, not unless they want to displace people who are 75, 80, 95. And if you are looking at competition, a 75 to, uh, I'm sorry, 65 to 74 year old is going to be much more likely to be able to navigate the tech system, get in online, get their vaccination. So states that did that, they were not really being completely transparent with their people. Now, the reason we started with 75 and essential workers is the following. We already have the lowest rate of COVID in, this, in the country. We already have the lowest mortality rate in the country, except for Vermont. And we have the lowest uh, rate of hospitalization of any state. So the goal really is to prevent loss of life. We already have prevented that better than anyone else. So then you have to go on to some of your other goals. Now, goals include not spreading the disease. So you want to do people who could be super spreaders. Some of those super spreaders may very well be an individual that, say, is living um, in a multi-generational household, is a person of maybe ethnicity that uh, has two jobs, and is otherwise going to spread a lot of virus if they get unlucky and catch it. That person is a much better person to vaccinate given our circumstance at this moment because it will create a even lower case rate for all of us. And you could make a lot of cases. For instance, um, I'm not going to take a, a position on the radio today or on TV about this, but if let's say you take a look at the prisons, okay? A prisoner has made a mistake. They've, they've committed some crime, and they've probably hurt someone, if not themselves. And others will call me and say, you know, just please don't, please don't vaccinate someone who's incarcerated ahead of 
my mom. And I totally get that. And, th- and that is the policy. We first go to our kapuna and so on. But having said that, if we have a big surge of cases at the prison and those guys are not totally healthy and 40 people end up at Queens Hospital and there's no beds for a much larger part of our population, then maybe we made a strategic mistake by not taking care of uh, you know, someone living in institutions. Now, I will say this. The institutions we're prioritizing are long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and so on. And people who lived in prisons, you know, we try to do our best. We're trying to mask, and there were some people that aren't there any longer and so on. Well, I've heard that uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to enforce these policies uh, in Hawaii's uh, facilities. Uh, the Halava, with the, with the 500 cases plus that they had, uh, the Sawato uh, facility uh, with over 600 uh, and then just, just this past week, we're learning about this death at uh, Halava. Uh, these are people who can't social distance. I mean, just it's because sorry, just because of what it, you know, of what it is. That's Fauci. Is yeah. that, it's Fauci <laughs> calling you. Fauci says, Fauci said, Malek will go easy on you. <laughs> 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 you know, so, so what, what do we do then? I mean, they can't social distance. They just, I mean, are we handing them enough masks? Are we, are we, do we have a good separation facility at Halava? What's really going on there? It's, it's extremely difficult. So my team, we personally took 6,000 masks down, and we're one of many groups that volunteered to send extra masks, to take extra services, and so on. Uh, it becomes an almost impossible challenge to get consistent six-feet separation, although what they're trying to do is to separate individuals so that they're spending very little time in close proximity. And that also has takes its toll because you can't really – condemn people to perpetual isolation. I mean, that's another challenge and another uh, another punishment, really. And so one of the things I recommended, I don't know ultimately if they were able to enact some of these recommendations, but going out to the courtyards, having more open airspace, again, it's a challenge. People have, in many cases, committed a pretty bad crime. And th- we're not going to release those people. I mean, I don't think we should if they've committed some bad, violent crime. On the other hand, uh, they should not have to, in addition to their their prison sentence, worry about catching a lethal disease. So these are always the considerations. I mean, and there's a lot of considerations historically about prisons and violence and um, things that people do to one another that are, you know, quite terrible. So we always worry. Institutions, their very nature is that they restrict our options. And one of our options in this case is to spread people out. So when do you foresee um, that anyone who wants to get a shot, someone like me, I'm a Gen Xer or, you know, the, the typical millennial or prisoner. When can anyone who wants to get a shot get a shot? When do you foresee that happening? I think that's early May. I, I think that we will see a quick acceleration in our, in our supply of the vaccine. And I think it's coming actually just about three weeks from now. That's when we're really going to see it ramp up. Do you have the logistical infrastructure in place to facilitate once that w- those vaccines get here? We do. So right now, we're already capable of delivering over 80,000 shots a week without difficulty. And we're only doing about 50,000 because that's all we get. That's all the doses that we have in state. The next step, though, is to move these vaccines out into the pharmacies, into the community where not just community health centers, but the actual pharmacies themselves. And so because some of these new vaccines don't require that super low temp, we're able to actually do that in the community. So just like the flu shot, it'll become the kind of thing where you'll just roll up to your CVS or Walgreens or whatever, uh, Safeway Pharmacy and so on, and you'll get your vaccine. And I think a lot of the times it's going to be these, e- these easier ones, perhaps the Johnson & Johnson that's just one shot, but that's going to give a lot of extra protection. And I, I think that we're going through the toughest groups right now because dealing with people who are very old, it's just challenging. I mean, they, they can only do so much to get out, uh, but each step gets easier. And when we hit the young uh, crowd, the millennials that are super savvy on their, you know, whether it's an iPhone or a Galaxy and just quick, 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 you know, you just couple, a couple, um, you know, taps and feels and then you're there, it's going to be great. Plus, in about two weeks, we're going to be launching, I'm told, a universal sign-up site so that you won't have to navigate the HawaiiCOVID19.com site quite the same way. That you may go to that website and we'll embed the, the th- links there, but just you'll be able to sign up and quickly sh- say, okay, this is the location, this is my age, did I qualify, go. It was very easy to get tested. There was, there was a moment in time where you could just go to that website, doineedacovid19test.com, 
and it was it was clear right in the middle of the page ready to to, to go and it was three or four clicks and it was easy um so much so that uh you know that seniors were able to do it and, and pretty much anybody was able to do it um you, you brought it up but i'll just say hawaii state covid site is really complicated there's yeah. a lot of links there there's a lot of pages there's a lot of tabs i mean i get that there's a lot of information uh but uh it could be better yeah i think so i i mean i think that it's it's great in a way because people fought to get extra information. Like, it's it's uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? So when we didn't have enough information, I got a lot of calls saying, why don't you have any information on there? It's sure. useless, right? Yeah. And uh, we'd like to know how many tests you did today, what percentage of them were positive, how many cases, where are the cases? So you add that layer, and you add the maps, and you add the vaccinations, and now you've got this monster that's got a ton of information if you've got time. But the most likely reason someone's going to the website is... What's the rules to, f to fly into Hawaii right. or fly to the neighbor islands? Or what's the place I can get my vaccine? And right. so I'll take from this conversation, I'll remind the guys, put those two tabs up there front and center and don't, you know, don't make it too complicated for Flash because, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. you know, come Good on. Pictures. Lots of <laughs> Otherwise, I won't, pictures. Get, I won't get a test till 2024. Lots of pictures. Uh, and then, of course, there's the technology challenge. You know, there's the people who just don't have Internet, have smartphones, uh, or don't know, really know how to use it. Um, is, are we ever going to get to the point where somebody can just decide, I need to get vaccinated today, so I'm going to walk down to the Blaisdell, or I'm going to walk to Aloha Stadium. Or walk to the CVS. And, and, and I'm, I want to get vaccinated today. It, it, yes. That, can we get to that point? Yes, I think we will. I think that's when we get past July 4th is when we'll go past the thresholds of anyone who wanted one that was based in one of the categories. Everyone will have had the opportunity based on all of the criteria. So at that point, it's fair game. It's open season. Mm -hmm. And that will also be a consideration for our keiki. You know, so sooner or later, they're going to okay some of the vaccines for our younger folks. So all of these things are going to happen. But, yes, that's eventually the way it often is, is like flu shots. You know, you're walking down the street and it says, get your flu shot here, right? You just go in and you pay 15 bucks or your insurance covers it. That's where it will be with the COVID also. So I think that that's going to happen. I think that will be the case for the boosters, by the way. I don't think that we'll have to compete for boosters I think the boosters will be open season uh, just because that'll be a year out. We'll already have knocked down COVID to a low, you know, low number. And, and, and you'd be getting a booster to, to address new variants that pop up? Could be new variants. Is that it, like the flu shot where you just, you just go over a year, you just plan on getting it? Yes, and it might be. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize this. Like uh, some boosters are not every year. Some boosters are every 10 years. The, uh, the Pneumavax, that vaccine to stop pneumonia, that's pneumococcal pneumonia, you get that every 10 years. So some are sooner, some are later. We haven't heard. We think that we've heard that some some people are suggesting it might be every two years. But what they're going to do is they're going to study the antibody profiles of people who have been vaccinated and see if you still have immunity. And if it wanes, get a new shot. Where do you or when do you think, um, I know you said by July 4th, you know, fingers crossed, anyone that wants a, a vaccination can get one. Um, what do you think the timeline is uh, for the state to achieve herd immunity and the timeline for anyone who wants a shot will have gotten a shot? Are we still talking about herd immunity? Is that still a... Oh, yeah. I mean, are we still shooting for that? M more than. In fact, we just did a new survey. So going into the first couple months of the, of the vaccine, we were only at 50%, 51% of the people felt that they would definitely get a shot, another 25% maybe, and then another 25% no way. We're now at 91% of the people who are either absolutely yes or I think it's – what was the number? It's 55% um, plan to get it as soon as they can, and another 36% will get it at a later time, which means they just want to watch one of their friends get it and, <laughs> and see if sure they live. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He turned into a zombie. So that's 90%, right, 91%. So I would say that we are going to get to that point sometime between uh, – look – Somewhere between Memorial Day, if we get a lot of extra vaccines approved, we will start getting to a spot where many people are immune up to Labor Day. So during the summer, we'll get there. That's why I split the difference kind of with July 4th. And we are going to get Johnson & Johnson. We don't know for sure if we're going to get AstraZeneca or the others. But we'll get herd immunity when we reach about 70% of the population. And that's about 850,000 to 900,000 people that are vaccinated. And we're already seeing, look, you see the earliest signs of, in, of shared immunity when you see the case counts drop down to, what are we at, we're at 50-something uh, today, 56. And maybe that's a, a slight reflection of the weekend. 
you know, we had the Super Bowl. People hopefully laid low, didn't like double dip their chips and get all totally wasted and watching Brady, you know, just some, some, some of us. Yes. Everyone's looking at Flash again. So Flash is <laughs> Flash was stone cold sober when the, when Brady was picking apart. You listen, know, the listen, <laughs> by the way, Maleko, when you walk, I know Maleko doesn't care about football, but when we walked in to the state capitol to the lieutenant governor's office, how dare he? He has a Steelers banner up on the wall saying this is Steelers country. As long as I'm lieutenant governor, I this is one I used to like you. Thing. You know, we, we but we got we got the black and yellow uh, headphones for you Thank today. Thank you very much. Worked out well. I I, I want to switch gears if I can. I, I unless you we, we we could talk about COVID all day. I'm sure. Um, anything you want. But um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, education. I want to talk about get, getting these kids back in school. Uh, talk about uh, the financial mess that the state is in as a result of COVID. Um, just the uh, last couple of days here, um, it was announced that there was going to be another budget cut. Or Just yesterday, the governor said that we were going to lose uh, another few points off of the budget in education. Uh, this is already a department that is suffering financially. Uh, it's hard to get teachers to Hawaii. It's hard to get them in the classrooms right now with COVID-19. Um, and already we're, we're suffering, and now we're going to see a bigger budget cut there. Um, this is something that I, I, I wonder, can we get a hold of this? Are we able to, to turn this thing around and somehow be able to get education as a priority again, or, or what, what's going on there? We absolutely have to. You know, I can't, um, I can't necessarily always agree with the guff, right? I'm, I'm my own person, and, and I know he does not want to cut education, so... I've heard him say that many times. Truth be told, we're going to have to come up with some more creative ways to fund education over time. There are some states that have gotten creative. They've had lotteries and they've funded education. I'm not a big gambling fiend, but I will tell you, anything that brings resources, anything that's a new economic generator, it should go to education and early education right off the bat. Uh, and that could be anything from revenues from marijuana sales to God bless you, to sir. a lottery to to a tax and impact fee on travelers that come here that because they're hounding us at, at eight, nine, ten million visitors a year and taking its toll on yeah. on our nerves and our and our people, though we love them to a degree, there may have to be that kind of impact fee. But those monies could go to education, which is the best investment. Now I've always I'm happy to hear you say that, oh, by the way. I've, just o I've always felt that you have to start teachers around fifty grand and you gotta go up from there because you can't really keep teachers otherwise and if you don't have sustained uh, you know, education teams, you have to relearn and relearn and relearn. And it takes a couple years to learn the Hawaii culture. It took me two full years as a physician in Kau to really understand my community. And I became a better doctor after two years in the community. And so it was good I didn't just leave, right? Well, if we just float, float teachers in here the same way and then we float them out, it's also not productive. So we should do that. Uh, but these are the best, I'll tell you, the best solution to not having to budget cut our ourselves to death, and it's, it's been happening, is to actually open the economy. And so when I press hard to allow travelers to come, and it appears controversial, I'm doing it from an analytic space where I'm saying, when we reach the majority of people that have finished the 1B vaccination, then we allow for inter-island travel. When we reach the majority of 1C, and that's without any testing and you let a lot of people come, it's because not only will those individuals that travel have to be vaccinated to go around the quarantine and so on, we ourselves in a majority will have been vaccinated and our most vulnerable people will be immune. Therefore, you get the win-win for sure. You get protection for your local people who can't spread COVID and they can't spread it or very minimally because they're immune. And what that does is it takes us from an average of 10,500 travelers a day. We've had 1.25 million travelers since I wrote the, the Safe Travels program. It's, we're heading on four months now because that was uh, October 15th till now. You go from that to 22,000 travelers again, which is a much, it's still a much more civilized number than when it was 30,000 a day. We can tolerate that. You're still going to feel like there's not a lot of people all over you, you know, like it was at 30,000, 33,000 a day. But you'll have enough revenue to actually fund the schools and hospitals. So we got to get there. And so I'm focused for economic purposes on reopening safely without a surge in cases. If you see a surge in cases, we damp it down. That's how you get through this and you don't have to cut stuff. Now, the governor talked about a recovery in 2024. That's, that's 
That's so far away. And in fact, that is that is punting the football to the next governor's plate. AKA and, yours. And you you told us last time that that your hat is in the ring. <laughs> yeah. And so te- theoretically that could it was be breaking your news by the way on the podcast. It, it was that day. Uh now we know. So it, it, considering that you could be in that office in 2024, yeah. um, what are you going to do with that big old plate of budget doo-doo? I'm going to solve this problem this year instead of waiting till 2021 goes by and 22 goes by. So we will have a much better budget than you're expecting. I think that the gov likes to, you know, he wants to damp down expectations, and that's okay to a point, but I'm not going to wait on that. So... I'm going to keep pushing to make sure that we open up better and faster than anywhere else. You can see the mainland's actually emulating us now. The, emula- the emulation is this. They're now using a safe travels program for their, for their domestic travel. That's about to be launched, and they're going to really curtail spread of the disease. We're already ahead of them three months, and three months and 20 days, all right? So they copied us, which is good. We'll do the same thing. We'll lead again by having – I'm going to use the term vaccination passport – Really, all it is is an app. We're going to either use Clear or uh, Common Pass as the other company where you get vaccinated. You don't have to. I mean, you can still do the safe travels program. But if you have that vaccination and then you want to have a wedding with 127 people, you can do it because you will have 127 people who can demonstrate they're immune, they're vaccinated, and you can have an event. Now, maybe you still have to wear a mask here or there, and we are, are smart about social distancing. But this is the way to do economic growth and to, to recover. And I think you recall, I mean, you guys were quite young, but when 9-11 occurred, I had just been here for a year. When 9-11 Flash occurred, was I'll take it. Yeah. I will take it. Flash was four years old, all right? So, you know, when 9-11 occurred and it, um, and it devastated our economy, we were able to recover uh, within, the, within the year. And we saw a very pent-up demand to come back to Hawaii, to paradise, because Look, first of all, it's within the United States, and so you didn't have to worry about significant terrorism here on our soil for the most part. You didn't have to worry about travel abroad where there was great concern. And we had seen a period of time, like we just saw, where people didn't travel. So all these individuals that have their dream trip have passed a lot of those lame loser trips, okay? For the last, like, every two months, they're just going off for one weekend to do nothing. Now, after three or four of those have passed, they may come here and be able to spend more and travel farther and, and have the dream trip of a lifetime. And I'm expecting that. And I think that that's really going to happen. So uh, I'm not waiting till. look, I, I may or may not get elected governor, but I can tell you I will behave as though we need to recover long before then because I see people hurting. And I'm not willing to sit by and wait and make excuses about 23 and 24. Um, I'm definitely aggressive in, in these ways, but I do it through analytics. I don't ever want to um, not be called on my data. You should call me on my data. But when we do things scientifically and right, which is what this is based on, we get ahead. And and I think it's going to be good. It's good for our brand. I already see people flocking to Hawaii, making longer-term investments. I have a, a pair of relatives, for instance, an aunt and uncle, that came here originally for a two-week vacation. And once they realized the, the caseload was this low, they stayed for two extra months. They're retired, but unbelievable. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. My uh, my my mom and stepdad just did that. They came out for five weeks. They're based in Northern California, and California is like a disaster right now. So they just extended their trip because they're like, well, we can do nothing at home, or we can do nothing here, and it's actually safer, and we can go out and do stuff here. Right, and it's and it's fresh That's air. That's a better quality of tourist, by the way. Somebody who comes here and stays for a while and 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 spends good money over a good extended period of time. Uh, I mean, to me, that seems like a higher quality of tourist than the one that flies in on a budget airline, stays for the weekend at a budget hotel, and spends a hundred dollars a day. Well, they're more interested in us, right? And they they have that sustained connection, so they can get, you know, they can get some of the culture in them. They can figure out where the real, you know, the real life is occurring. They can figure out what it means to be Filipino in Hawaii. They can find out what it means to be a part of a different community and see our, you know, kind of our, um, our, I guess our, uh, our multi-ethnicity approach to to life. And it's good. I love it. Now, not everyone can take three or four weeks off, but a lot of people are changing their lifestyles. A lot of people are working as attorneys and, and educators and all kinds of things from a distance. So we're going to see more of that. My team's already building plans to emphasize uh, distance professions. 
that's going to be lucrative for Hawaii. Is, that's something that we're going to expand on. The uh, I mean, there is a program, the remote worker program, that that's started now. The uh, uh, what is it called? Work from uh, work. From, work from, was it shock movers and shockers? Movers and shockers. Yeah, My whatever. sister just did that. My sister just moved from San Francisco because San Francisco is such a California, such a disaster. She was able to <laughs> negotiate with her her employer. She's been working remotely this whole time. She's literally just moved to Hawaii last week because of that. It's easier to live here. It's safer to live here. Just the same reason that, that your relatives extended their stay from a work standpoint. If you're going to work remotely, you can work remotely from your house in you know on the mainland, or you can work remotely from your house here. Is that something we want? It, it is something, I think, that we want to have part of our culture. We knew a guy, uh, in fact, Jamie and I bought their condo <laughs> from them, when he had to move back, but he was doing the following. He was the radiologist, so, you know, an x-ray guy, a doctor, reading radiology uh, studies, um, CT scans, MRIs, and so on, for the state of Tennessee. And so he was set up here, and he could do the day shift in the day while he was covering their nights, and he was able to provide excellent care, top-notch guy. And that was a very interesting use of technology, and this was 10 years ago. Now we're seeing so many new opportunities. There'll be distance education, and it's not all that it's cracked up to be sometimes. I mean, I still think it'll be great to send the kids to college. It'll be great to have that experience. It'll be important to still see your doctor in person. It shouldn't be just on an iPhone, but the world is changing some, and these kind of crises change things faster. We saw that already, and I'm a young enough guy to take that into the future. So with my family, that's the way we'll govern. We're chosen. And I really want people to know that there are new opportunities. We felt for a long time that we had to have totally different industries that were, I guess, kind of more creative and different than our traditional structured uh, industries. Still love tourism, believe me. It's still our bread and butter. But 20 to 30% of the expansion should be in other stuff. We just got about five minutes left. Uh, I do want to ask a very specific question to you uh previously bills have been passed that don't allow the mayor or the governor to have a side hustle now someone just introduced a bill specifically to inhibit the lieutenant governor to have a side hustle like let's say oh i don't know being a doctor and saving people's lives who is this person and how come they don't like you <laughs> and how can where's what's their address how can we go talk to them let's take them out well they, they spend a lot of time in the building for sure <laughs> <laughs> um, like I, whatever people decide uh, from a policy standpoint, uh, that's their prerogative. But when I was partially reattaching a woman's leg this weekend, I think she'd prefer that I do have some time in the emergency department on the Big Island. I, I care for my patients uh, with all my heart. I'll always be a doctor. And if someone's going to mess around with that, we may have to have a conversation. But uh, uh, if I do become governor, of course, then what I'll do, and I've already uh, shared this with my wife, I'll share it with you guys. I become um, our governor, I'll just do humanitarian medicine and work in our homeless shelters and so on. But I've always gone back to the Big Island to be a physician. So, uh, you know, I find those kind of political attacks to be um, less than kind and less than intelligent. You feel free to name names, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll let those things pass for now. And, and ultimately, uh, if I'm lucky enough to serve as governor, I will make sure my lieutenant governor has an extraordinary role to play to make Hawaii great I that's mean, important I there, we have a long list of lieutenant governors that had a much lesser role in policy making I, I think that uh it just in as as far as i can go back in my mental rolodex uh you've been the most prominent lg um even before covid i even feel before like before covid yeah. uh you know when we were talking about mauna kea when we were talking about about other issues you were you were very much at the forefront of those policies uh, uh certainly uh more than your predecessor you know uh by, by quite a bit. So uh, looking forward then to the next couple of years, uh, as, we, as we start to get out of this COVID-19 uh, recession, as we start to build ourselves some immunity and start to bring back our economy, where does Hawaii stand with tourism versus making money using our cultural uh, ability to, to generate income using our resources without having to tax them? Pretty big question. Uh, where we stand is we should go at least, uh, we should expect to go to at least 70% of tourism. I, we can't survive with less than that right now, not in the short term. But we should actually do a couple different things. We have to make it a building period. We have to build housing. If we don't build housing that's very affordable, we are finished. And so 
that has to be a signature part of our growth. I also think that attracting individuals of, of both uh, skill and wealth is going to be very easy to do because people are spooked by what happened with COVID, and we always welcome others. Hawaii welcomed me in 2000 to be a physician, and, and I'll be forever grateful. But we should welcome others and incorporate them into society. That's key. There's got to be a total change in our approach to renewable energy, and we should be the leader. I mean, there's so much science and economic gain to be had right there. And then finally, I'll be committed to actually uh, resuming our work on homelessness with the Kauhali that we've begun to build, one over in, in Kalailoa and another over uh, in Waimanalo have already sprouted up, and we're grateful for that. Plus, the H4 started this week, and that was just something that, you know, it melted my heart that we finally were able to do that. So uh, the future is actually very bright. I'm excited to, to have the opportunities that I may very well have in the coming years because you'll get to know Jamie, uh, who is, you know, not just the love of my life, but also she kicks butt and is a, a woman, grew up in Kaneohe, an attorney trained here, went to Brown. You add her to the mix uh, in, a, in a functional way as First Lady, if, if we're lucky like that. This is going to be a dynamic family venture, and we're excited about it. And I like a challenge. Although I didn't want it to be COVID creating the challenge, I do like a challenge, and that's how I'm driven. Lieutenant Governor Dr. Josh Green joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for inviting us to hang out in your office. Uh, we're just going to stay here if you leave. Yeah. I mean, I know you got another meeting, but i got nothing else to do I, the rest of the I do. Day, right? I, ha I have one more hot potato question for the LG. I can't <laughs> let them off the hook without asking of this question. Of course you do. You always have one more question. What's the biggest difference in dealing with the federal government with the Trump administration versus the Biden administration? Well, it was, um, it was interesting for me. Okay, so even with the Trump guys, I did call them and share ideas. Now, we tended to not have a clear... Uh, kind of brain meld on a lot of our ideas, but I still took them. I went and met with Ben, um, um, Dr. Carson. I, you know, I met with uh, the different White House officials and tried to get them to move ideas, and, and I don't judge. Uh, but now when I text or call the Surgeon General, maybe that's not the best example because I did, I did like the other Surgeon General too, but when I text or call the White House, I feel like the policies that we promote uh, have a good chance. And I also feel that they're paying attention and looking at what we're doing as an example, we're already seeing some of the policies coming out of the, the president's COVID commission uh, emulate what we've done here. So I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of our Department of Health and General Hara and, you know, the administration that's worked hard because our numbers are so much better than everyone else. It's not just the Pacific Ocean. It's Hashtag humble brag. It's, it's, <laughs> it's happening, you know. So I like, I like dealing with them. And, you know, I think we're less likely to blow up all of Washington now. So it's a good thing. This is a yeah. definitely a good, good thing. thing. Yeah. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much for your time Look today. Right at 3 o'clock. Uh, Dr. Josh Green with us today, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, this entire episode available on demand on our YouTube page uh, or at molecoandflash.com. Uh, we hope uh, that uh, you'll, we'll be invited back sometime soon. We did give you a Diet Coke. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really what? do prefer Diet Pepsi, but this was very thoughtful <laughs> of you, you guys. What? Oh, man. Oh, my God. And Pepsi is actually one of our sponsors. Damn. Shame, 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 shame. Or shame. Maybe the, maybe the next time we, we talk to uh, <laughs> the lieutenant governor, he won't be the lieutenant governor anymore. Maybe he'll be the governor? Is that what maybe you're saying? Maybe he'll be the, gov the governor. Wow. And then we're definitely not getting it. Then we're definitely back. not getting it. We'll, yeah. we'll definitely talk long before then. And, and <laughs> I'll be happy to do whatever people need. So it, it's still fun. And it's fun to go to the hospital and work and help people. So that, that ain't happening as long as I, you know, I'm going to be a doctor no matter what. So to that point. But, hey, thank you guys for coming to the fifth floor, and this is really, you know, this is part of your your state and your house, too, just as much as is mine, so it was good to see you. I love it. Thanks uh, so much again. Uh, Flash, we are out of here. Dr. Green! We're going to be back uh, next week, of course, with uh, more content at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Make sure you join us here for the Maleco and Flash show. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>